This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, February the 2nd, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the weekly news panel gets back together. Michelle McQuig joined stories of the week, including the latest developments in the Hockey Canada sexual assault scandal. There have also been a bunch of issues surrounding the rollout of $10 a day daycare. And it begs this question, how much patience do you have for growing pains when governments roll out a major policy. And the Toronto District School Board is cancelling classes in April on account of a solar eclipse. How appropriate is that? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Happy Groundhog Day to you, whether it's spring or winter. Always enjoy hanging out with you on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. The top story of the day, it's all about your money. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem spoke to a parliamentary committee yesterday about interest rates and housing. Here's what Macklem had to say about interest rates impacting home affordability. You're not going to solve housing with low interest rates and you're not going to solve it with high interest rates. We've tried both and we've had high shelter price inflation. And, and it comes back to, you know, the durable solution is to increase the supply. And that includes both supply of homes and the supply of uh, purpose-built rental. Macklem talked more broadly about the state of inflation. We know Canadians want to see... Uh, inflation come down. We know they're tired of seeing uh, prices go up so quickly, and we know they'd like to see interest rates come down. And so would we. Just a bit of broader context. You know the Bank of Canada held its rate steady last week. The U.S. Federal Reserve is holding theirs as is. And the Bank of England also announced they'll be keeping their rate steady yesterday. Housing is not just an issue in Canada. China has rolled out a flurry of measures to prop up its property markets. Charles de Ledesma has that story. The moves to help renters and increase the supply of affordable housing to spur demand come just weeks before officials gather in Beijing for the National Congress. Chinese stocks sank on Friday, dragged lower once again by property-related shares. The government's expanded access to loans to counter the industry-wide meltdown triggered by a crackdown that began several years ago on excessive borrowing. On Thursday, finance ministry officials pledged to keep spending at unnecessary intensity. Various regions have issued white lists of projects qualifying for lending. I'm Charles Duladesma. And coming back to Canada, TD Economics has released a report about what happens to students who graduate college and university during a recession. Don Kelly shares some of the findings. 
For about a decade after they joined the workforce, these grads tend to earn about 9% less per year than their peers who graduated in better economic times. TD has found that women and visible minorities tend to draw the short end of the stick during economic downturns, adding to the obstacles they face in the labour market. The report suggests work-integrated learning programs involving skills like networking, problem-solving and data analysis can increase the likelihood of recent grads getting hired and improve their earnings long term. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. And one more story. You know the deadline for RRSP. I was going to say donations, but that's not right. RRSP investments and contributions is coming up, and some Canadians are considering using an RRSP loan to boost their annual contribution. You see, there's the word. Michelle Zedekian takes a closer look. If an investor has a contribution room and is short on cash, the idea of a larger tax refund than they would otherwise receive does sound enticing. But experts say those considering taking on debt to invest need to look at more than the potential size of their tax refund. Even investors who have used an RRSP loan successfully in the past will want to consider the higher interest rates charged on loans this year. Investors also need to remember that any loan is adding debt and could impact your credit score and other borrowing. Michelle that again, the Canadian press. All right, that's a look at the news that impacts your money. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked, Canadian restaurants are using robots to prepare food. Would you eat at a restaurant operated by robots? 43% of you said yes, 57% of you said no. Leanne writes in, dined at a place that was a mix of robots and humans. The robot took care of the happy birthday singing, which was more preferable than most of the server groups I've ever heard. LOL, lol. I would not choose a place with robots deliberately, but if I go somewhere and they have them, I'm not going to turn around and walk out either. Pearly Pigtails comments, I'm trying to imagine such a place, lol. Ah, yes, no, but ultimately, no. Leona writes in, yes, at least once, like any other restaurant, it's the food and service that matter. Philip chimes in, I would put this in between yes and no. Yes, because we have some great services, and no, because I would be missing the human interaction so much, especially some very nice people that you miss talking with. No doubt about that. There's something about the personal connection, especially when you're a regular at a place. I know I'm thinking about popping into my regular this afternoon just to say hi, to have a laugh with a few people that I like. Okay, let's turn to today's daily poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. NHL All-Star festivities are underway in Toronto don't worry, I'm not going to force you to talk about Toronto things. But when a major event comes to your town, you see, to your town, do you attend some of the non-official events like live podcast recordings, concerts, fanfares, etc.? Yes or no? Laura Bain, welcome back. You've been talking a lot about some of the shoulder programming around the Junos when they come to Halifax later this year. So when the Junos come to town, will you take part in some of those shoulder programming events? 
Yeah, you know, that was really the event that I was thinking of uh, the Junos because I was trying to think of some other, I, I feel like, you know, Halifax doesn't have quite as many major events of the type where you might have these satellite events. Now, probably there's lots that I'm just not thinking of, but I was really kind of racking my brain. I know we've had some big sporting events happen here over the last few years that have probably had satellite events. Don't ask me what those sporting events were. They were basically just like a vague Oh, you know, avoid the downtown thing for me. It, you know, <laughs> folks know I'm not like a, I'm not into watching sports, but um, definitely the Junos were the ones that that came to mind. I don't think at this point it looks like I'm going to be going to the main event, but I certainly will be looking at what is happening, kind of uh, unof like officially and otherwise at some smaller venues around Halifax. And if there's something there that interests me and works with my schedule, I'll definitely be checking it out. Uh, maybe if they can have some shows that are in that kind of 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. time oh, slot, yeah. that would really be ideal. <laughs> oh yeah, now we're talking again, just like that concert I told you about last. Friday, 5.30 exactly. to 7.30. Come on now. Let's live life. Uh, Alex Smythe, it's well known that I'm something of a recluse. There are some events going on around Toronto this weekend, including one of my favorite hockey writers, Greg Wyshynski. He's going to be doing a bunch of different events. I'm not going to be going to them, but maybe in a different life, my answer would have been yes. Yeah, so I, I always think uh, for when when this question was posed, I was thinking the Grey Cup because that's one that I have had experience with uh, when I was in Edmonton. They they came to Edmonton because it was the game was being hosted there and they turned the downtown into this kind of like fanfare section. They have a bunch of kiosks and booths and activities for the whole family to enjoy. I did go one time to check that out and it was a it was fun to get downtown, you know, see what's happening, you know, all the things that are being put on. Unfortunately, this year it was in Hamilton. I didn't have a, a chance to go and enjoy uh, all the fanfare with that. But I, I think there's something special to it because it, it, especially when you get out of the major cities like the Toronto, it's like you get into more the Hamilton, even even Edmonton, less so because like you know you, you're not getting these these huge events necessarily. Whereas like Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal are, are kind of really getting the major events. So. It's nice when they come to those secondary markets, so to speak, and, and you can really kind of highlight the town. The, the local population can enjoy it to get a glimpse of some of these fun activities. It's an exciting time. Laura, I would honestly recommend if, uh, if it's coming to Halifax for the Junos, go check out some of them because I'm, I'm sure there'll be something there you can kind of find and you can enjoy. And it, you don't have to be overwhelmed by literally everything going on. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I think you've both kind of like hit that there, right? That that maybe in a city like Toronto, something can sort of fall below the surface a little bit. But when something mm. more large scale comes to Halifax or comes to Hamilton or Edmonton, the the population might be able to get a little more into it, Laura. Even as like the community around that event comes for a visit. Yeah, true enough. And something that I was thinking about as well was the online aspect event, because sometimes you get these sort of like um, spin-off online events, and they can be a great way if there are accessibility challenges with getting out to the event. Sometimes I find that for myself or needing to have like a sighted guide go with me. I'm definitely likely to check out if there's an online version of an event that I can join. Yeah, very cool. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. 
You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. There's also the option of grabbing the phone and giving the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, there have been some serious developments in the Hockey Canada scandal. Five players in connection with a 2018 sexual assault have been charged by London police. The news panel will consider some of the bigger implications. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the weekly news panel gets together. Welcoming into the show, the panelists, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And good morning to Michelle. Good morning, guys. All right, let's jump right in. There have been some serious developments in the Hockey Canada scandal. London police have charged five players from Canada's 2018 World Junior team with an alleged sexual mm -hmm. assault. Four of the players are on leave from their NHL teams. One player is no longer in the league. Joita, what are your takeaways from the last two weeks in this scandal? I don't want to get into too many particulars here. It is an ongoing uh, criminal investigation, and uh, I don't also want to speculate too much if I can help it. But my key takeaway is that these allegations were first made in 2018, uh, in June 2018, and after the sexual assault allegedly took place, it was reported to Hockey Canada the very next day. Mm -hmm. And if you fast forward now, it's 2024, and we're still talking about this. And I think my key takeaway really is about how these situations get handled by institutions, uh, whether it's, you know, a hockey league or, you know, we've had other scandals at colleges and universities where there's a real impetus to try and deal with these things internally. And in so doing, when we have, it's a bit like the fox watching the hen house. So I don't know if we really get any satisfactory resolutions rather than just having gone through, uh, gone to the police right away and had that criminal investigation. It is possible that, even if there were would have been some reputational damage to the institution, uh, what we're seeing right now is some six years on or five years on, this incident continues to cast a long shadow. Obviously, it's hard for the victim and difficult for the victim. There's no denying that. But also, in all fairness, it's it's hard on the people who have been accused uh, because no one is really and and hard because no one is really seeing a clear end to this. Uh, and there have been, you know, broader repercussions for Hockey Canada, which I think we might get a chance to talk about later. But I think my key takeaway really is it's better to just handle these things in the way in the way that they were always meant to be handled, which is, you know, by involving the police and by conducting a thorough cr criminal investigation. Because right now what you're looking at is a situation where no one is happy and this thing has been dragged on 
far too long. Six years is really quite a long time. Yeah, an important piece of context here, based on backlogs in the Ontario court system, it's estimated that this court, this case will not even go to court until 2026, uh, mm, a ways wow. away down the road. And considering the alleged assault took place in 2018, it, Michelle, I, I also am struck by just the timeline nature of this. The fact that the London police investigated this once before yes, and, and, let exactly. it, and let it go and that Hockey Canada was involved in their own internal operations uh, in regards to trying to get settlements and non-disclosure agreements. The, I, I just feel for a victim who might have to wait nine or ten years to get justice. We are all very much on the same page because it was similar aspects that jumped out at me, specifically the police part. I'm glad you raised that, Dave, because that's that really jumped out at me, too. This is a case where according to all the reporting that's been done so far, and of course we know that we're, we're, there's still a lot of facts that will need to come out through the criminal process, but from all we've heard, uh, the victim did report the alleged assault the very next day. Uh, she followed all the timelines that one is supposed to follow when reporting an incident or allegations of this nature. The police investigated it and no charges were laid. It was only this past summer, last summer, when the scandal was at full boil that the police decided to reopen the investigation. So that's kind of what jumped out at me as well. Is is and bear in mind this was all in 2018. We were months removed from the Me Too movement from the start of it. So this was really mm. top of mind at the time. And even so, we saw this sort of complaint handled in what could what I would best describe as the old school way of okay, well nothing nothing was found, nothing was done. Lo and behold, they reopen the investigation and all of a sudden they're in position to charge five people. It, it, there there are questions that are raised about the kind of investigation that took place and the processes that are followed. So like both of you, I'm thinking a lot about process and, and transparency. That's the other piece of it, too, is that there's all kinds of investigations, none of which have been released, whether it's from Hockey Canada or or the NHL itself, uh, all kinds of probes that are mm. all kind of still in the wind, and we don't have much information about it. So like you guys, I circle around transparency and disclosure and process right yeah. now. And some of the implications is where we can do a bit of speculation here. Again, I want to be respectful because this is a very much a human story, but there are institutional implications, whether it be to Hockey Canada, the National Hockey League, or even hockey culture more broadly. One of the things I've been struck by this week is a lot of silence from Hockey mm -hmm. Canada, even, yes. with, even with the board changeover. And and what I what I will say is probably an earnest good faith attempt to try and change the way the institution operates. Joita, I I am a little shocked by the silence this week from Hockey Canada. Yeah, the silence is very telling, especially when you think about what happened. Um, so I want to say some eighteen to twenty months ago, where we had the announcement from the federal government where they were pulling funding from Hockey Canada until mm -hmm. this was adequately addressed. If you remember, they um, they subsequently restored funding to Hockey Canada in last April with the proviso that they would address the culture of silence, the trivialization of sexual assault, and um, and and really address the culture around a safe sport. Uh, and yet, the silence, as you noted, is so telling, especially in light of um, in light of what happened with the federal government and the cessation, at least for a time, of, of funding, uh, the freezing of funding. So that you know, that culture of silence is at the root of a lot of these problems, uh, and that's really where a lot of the change needs to come from. Where we where I think Hockey Canada, the NHL, and indeed any large institution, for that matter. 
need to think through the implications um, of how they handle things like sexual misconduct or even bullying uh, in sport, where uh, the institution and players themselves are made to understand that the establishment will no longer protect them. And I think mm. what that's the that's really been both a key takeaway and also the implications here are if you think about the implications, uh, there are obviously implications for the players and implications for the victim, as I said before. But I think in terms of the uh, in terms of the institution, in terms of Hockey Canada, the biggest implication is that, yes, you're not really dealing with it in the way that you were supposed to. And that the culture around sports and safe sports and uh, and ensuring that um, that sexual assaults don't just get you know shoved under the rug that that culture ne needed to to change and that change is is long overdue yeah uh michelle i, I do want to talk about the <laughs> national hockey league but i want to give you the general opportunity in your mind the bigger implications for hockey but yeah this is it i mean all of this makes one wonder about those pledges to tackle the culture in light of the silence and may maybe this is part of a more comprehensive response coming forward but we don't know that. And and like we all mentioned before, transparency has been a consistent theme of something that's been lacking throughout all of this. But yeah, when an organization pledges to make all kinds of changes and then stays silent in the face of such significant developments as criminal charges against five people, uh, that certainly raises some questions for me about uh the commitment to the project overall. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the National Hockey League just because there are four players who have NHL contracts who are now on leaves of absences from their teams. And there becomes a very complicated labor conversation that the NHL is going to have to grapple with in both real time and moving forward because NHL contracts are guaranteed. That's been worked out through collective bargaining. So these four players who are on leaves of absences are still drawing their salaries under their contracts. And I do feel that one of the bigger implications that the NHL and their players union is going to have to grapple with moving forward is how they handle that side of the labor equation. Because mm -hmm. these players were actively given contracts by teams while some of these investigations and speculations were going on. And and Joita, I, 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 I know it's not as big a deal as the human story, but as someone who's just interested in collective bargaining and labor, I do think that's a big implication moving forward as well. Because some of that money is going to be used for legal fee like legal defense fees, right? Like like that that gives you a sense of power in a courtroom. Yeah, of course it does. That's a that's a really good point. But at the same time, the purpose of any union is to defend its members. Um, and when it comes to a matter like this, it, it these are still alleged. This is still we're still yes. talking about yes. this being an alleged sexual um, you know misconduct. We're not really able to make a decision one way or the other. And what the precedent in in any sphere is that you know if there's an alleged anything, you presume innocent until proven guilty and that's where the point about the yeah. delay becomes even more detrimental to the to the to the whole process because the flip side of it is you can't punish somebody for something they've allegedly done mm -hmm. you do need to have some yep. clarity on whether they were actually guilty of the thing that they are accused of having done but here we are six years on and we don't know any way one way or the other so i think the real issue here you're right to like flag the labor implications and the conversations that the unions need to have about how they handle these things but remember that the crux the whole point of belonging to a union is that they will have to defend a, a worker 
to the best of their abilities. And that does create some sticky situations, but that's ultimately why yeah. a union exists to protect the work. Yeah. You, you know, Michelle, yeah. as I raise that, it's not simply about the Players Association, though. It's also about the investigative powers of the league, because the league has done some investigation on this, and the league has worn some of their own egg on their face in the last couple of years with the uh, scandals with the Chicago Blackhawks. So that's one of the reasons why I think mm. about the bigger implications around the culture of the National Hockey League, that they, pardon the pun, don't get to necessarily scale on this just because they're not the institution in question no that's fair and there as you you know you, we made it pretty clear there's a direct link between the, the the allegations involving these players and people who are now active players it is tricky because the allegations did not take place on the nhl's watch technically speaking but i i i kind of land where we're joita does to be honest if this this is difficult it's kind of a worst case scenario for a union to have to grapple with but that is ultimately what has to happen and i'm reminded of cases in, in which Police officers are accused of misconduct and are suspended immediately with pay. That's the mm -hmm. de facto mm -hmm. position. And, and that seems um, to make sense, given the, the the kind of justice system that we have here and the way things work. So uh, I would love to know a lot more about what the league knew and when and how it was handled. And again, this comes back to the, their, own their own transparency and disclosure yeah. on this. Mm -hmm. um, but there's for that reason, too, I'm a little hesitant to, to throw too many stones without knowing as much as I would like to know. Well, speaking of transparency, the London police are going to be having a formal press conference on Monday of next week. So that's when there'll be a little bit more opportunity to uh, understand what's going on with process and timelines moving forward. Thank you both for your thoughts on this one. Don't go anywhere because coming up next will uh, lighten the mood, kind of, sort of, maybe, a little bit. There are some issues surrounding the rollout of the $10 a day daycare program, and it begs this question, how much patience do you have for growing pains when governments are rolling out major policies? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. There is big drama when it comes to the rollout of $10 a day daycare across the country. Daycare providers say they need more resources or they're going to have to shut down Provinces are asking for more money. Ontario is asking city-run daycares to do financial audits of their services. And the federal government says the provinces knew they were what they were signing on to, and there's no more money to go around. Michelle, that is just the thumbnail sketch of thumbnail sketch. I probably could have played about 15... Oh, I, <laughs> I, I could have played about 15 audio clips in this introduction, but I wanted to get to the conversation, because this does beg... A question. $10 a day daycare is an important policy. It was a huge plank in the 2021 election. I know people who voted for the Liberals simply because of that policy plank. How much yeah. patience do you have for growing pains when governments are rolling out an important policy? Personally, I have a certain amount for it. I have, I have, I'd say probably higher than most. So take everything I say with a grain of salt for that reason. These things do take time. It is a very complicated program to run out. 
We've talked before about the jurisdictional tug of war that's inevitable in a case like this when you get feds in the provinces and territories involved. But at the same time, you, you it does raise some questions about the math. Uh, presumably all parties were in a position to do a bit of math before this deal came out. And it does raise some questions about whether 10 bucks perhaps uh, sounded good as, as a campaign slogan oh, and maybe 20 oh, bucks a day might have been a little I wanna better. Get, I want to get to that. Don't you worry. Okay. Then I will hold my fire. But yeah, I, I, I do definitely have questions about the amount of due diligence that was performed by all parties. Um, certainly not the operators so much. It's difficult for them to make decisions until they're actually confronted with the realities of these things. But surely uh, some of these hurdles could have been at least somewhat foreseeable. And so I wonder how that came about. Joita, knowing that billions of dollars were on offer here over the course of five years, the grand total is $30 billion, but the rollout is going poorly, right? When, when operators are sounding the alarm saying, we can't work under this funding model and do $10 a day, and provinces are asking the feds for more money and asking people to do audits, and at the end of the day, the people who are suffering are parents who would be the people who want to benefit from this program. How much patience do you have? Um, like Michelle, I probably have more patience than might be evident. Um, you know, in the military, they have a saying that no plan survives contact with the enemy. And of course, we're not talking in terms of, you know, adversaries here. But it is a good point to note that things do often look um, and sound a lot better on paper than they do in practice. And this is a complicated program to roll out, uh, involving, you know, thousands of people across the country, very different local realities, and many different providers and clients. So, of course, there were going to be growing pains. Uh, could the government have done more? Could we have had deeper negotiations? Uh, I know Ontario sat on the fence with this one for a really long time. It was the last province yes. to sign on. So, yeah. you know, and yet, despite all the bickering in the back and forth, we're still having people come up with, you know, complaints. And I don't know how much of that is really the government's fault. I know it's it's nice to blame the government for everything going wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, if you look at the case in Alberta, one of the clauses that was built into the agreement was a 3% increase that would go up every year. So, that, you know, to account for inflation. And we've talked about how as a result of the pandemic, inflation has just been through the roof. We're probably mm -hmm. talking about a 20 to 25%, maybe 20% cumulative you know, increase to inflation since the pandemic began mm -hmm. in 2020. And did the, the question really at the core of this is, did anyone see this coming? And I am not an economist, so I will readily say I didn't. So I'm going to wash my hands off of it. But the government did have people who ostensibly are more knowledgeable than, you know, the three of us. And I think the real question is, you know, did anyone anticipate the implications of the pandemic in trying to roll out what is undoubtedly a very ambitious program and one that the Liberal government intends to fully milk in the run-up to the next election oh, is a time. major political oh, yeah. victory. Yeah. So the question really is not so much, you know, are we concerned about the growing pains? Because I think we have to kind of accept the growing pains for what they are, uh, an inevitability. Uh, but I think the question really then becomes, did they actually roll out this plan, bearing in mind the context? And the context is, Everybody struggling. The, the economy was struggling and limping after the pandemic. And, yeah. and did they actually factor that in? When yeah. I say patience, though, it's not simply directed <clears throat> at the federal government. It's it's directed at, at almost everybody involved here. Because for the vast majority of provinces, deals were struck by the end of 2022. And things started rolling out late last year and early this year. And 
it takes two years to certify early childhood educators. That That's about the time frame that it takes to train an ECE, let alone give them internships and opportunities to grow. So you had to know there was going to be a demand here, and it required some urgency. So although I might have patience for growing pains. That patience is only going to go so far. And I'll tell you the patience of voters who are directly impacted by this is going to be even lower than my mm -hmm. own. It's, it's just one of these moments that's a reminder that you can have these big picture policies in play, but implementation is so, so critical. And in, in life, in implementing anything, like you said, Joita, use the military example, there's always going to be that rough one year to eight 18 months. The scale was much much smaller, but the cannabis rollout in this country was an was an like was an unmitigated disaster oh, yeah. for about a year yeah. and a half, and that has pretty like that has pretty much stabilized itself. There there are still some economic challenges for companies that maybe thought they were going to become a billion dollar corporation and now <laughs> are going bankrupt. But but yeah. but <laughs> but but the reality is sometimes that that the real world is going to get in the way of, of of implementation. But Michelle, one of the reasons why I'm on this patience thing is because of the importance of the program. You know, the Liberal government, this is where I will put a little bit on the feds, touted this as societally transformational, right? So if you want to do something that's yeah. socially transformational, you've really got to get it right, especially if you do want to tout it as a victory in a, in a 2025 election campaign. You've got to get it right, but you are also you are also a bit reinventing the wheel. This is a brand new system. We have not had anything like it here. So I, I do think that growing pains are even more inevitable in a case like this. It's not like they're revisiting an old template. So I have, again, still more patience for that sort of thing, but I do think some political context matters. I suspect if this kind of program had been rolled out in 27 or 17 or 18, when public appetite for the liberals was much, much, much higher and there was greater tolerance for, for uh, their various actions, that this might not come under as much direct scrutiny or pressure. Now it's it's added to the pile of the many, many things that many, many Canadians are perceived that this government has messed up. And I think that's contributing to some of the, the, the tone and tenor of the conversations with the provinces. They know, especially those who, who don't historically agree with this government, they know that this government is a bit of a sitting duck at the mm. moment and, and is an easy target. So I think all of that it's also relevant to the conversation and might be influencing the tone a bit because you're right, things do even out. And it's worth noting, I think that this program is nowhere near done spooling up. It's supposed to keep spooling up over the next three or four years. Yeah, so. yeah. The, the the funding that was struck was over it was over a five year a five year commitment uh, period of time, right? So it wasn't thirty billion dollars in one shot. It was supposed to exactly. be rolled out over, yeah. over a period of time to to help up ramp up the system. Uh, Joita, I, I made the comment off the top here that I probably could have played about fifteen sound clips of finger pointing from various levels of government and childcare operators and early childhood education associations. I could have played a lot of clips off the top of this uh, segment that would have involved a lot of finger pointing. What does this, this, this conversation suggest to you more broadly about the way in which uh, downloading and jurisdiction ends up impacting policy in Canada? I think it's an inevitability that we're going to have some finger pointing. Take, in, take for example, the housing file, right? Everybody's been oh. passing the buck on oh. that one for oh, yeah. decades now. So I think it's a pretty clear, surefire indication that the the wrangling, the political dissatisfaction, the horse trading, and the quibbling is just part and parcel of of, of federalism. And we're not going to get away from it anytime soon. Uh, the, you know, it's worth noting that um, while we have a, 
you know a, a liberal government uh, on the federal at the federal level uh provincially you're seeing a lot of conservative or ndp government so there isn't that kind of unanimity in in point of view and maybe you know for uh, you know maybe you know even those kind of distressing uh, on the surface maybe there's some value in the back and forth and the finger pointing mm. because that's how you end up with good policies yeah. when you get criticism from different people in different places uh so you know am i annoyed by it sure i mean would it not have been nice if everybody had just gotten along and agreed with everything but that's just not how it works and <laughs> You yeah, know, that's fair. Yeah. The real world, right? The real world. Uh, Michelle, maybe my feeling on finger pointing is maybe y'all should have finger pointed while you were handing out uh, checks for billions of dollars. Maybe, but like Joita said, there's the, the, uh, there's the theory of the program and the practice of the program. So a fresh round of finger pointing doesn't surprise me a whole lot in, <laughs> in the context of that, um, especially now that the childcare operators themselves have a chance to weigh in, right? This is a, a voice that couldn't, by definition, be fully included in the rollout and, and in the design of the program and in the, the negotiations that took place between the governments and the provinces. I'd like to think that some of the associations re representing them would have been involved at some point. But now we've got the actual people on the ground weighing in, and that's a whole different perspective that needs to be accounted for. You've both time for that. You've, 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 you've both alluded to this, and it's, it's worth grappling with the question, if $10 a day was actually the right number, or did it just sound good? Because growing up in Quebec, $5 a day daycare was a big thing. That was something mm -hmm. people talked about. Yeah. But that's when I would, that was 1997 or 1998, those conversations were going on about $5 a day daycare. It's, it's uh, 25 years later, and uh, inflation has certainly more than doubled. And I know that none of us can truly answer this question, especially considering there is supposed to be subsidization going on in this program. But Joita, was $10 a day ever actually the right number? Was it just optically kind of nice? Who's to say? I mean, it could have been $5 a day across yeah. the country. Certainly, Quebec, you know, it's a well-known example. Or if you want to be, you know, if, if, if $10 a day falls short, then why not 15 right? So I don't know if the actual number is the more interesting part of this question for me, but... I think in trying to determine what that number was, uh, yes, I mean, I mean, part of it could have been optics, undoubtedly, uh, right? It's it's the the less you the the number is is a nice round number, ten dollars a day, works out <laughs> to about two hundred dollars a month, you know, for parents who are working full time per kid. Uh, so you know, and maybe some people would say even that's too much. But I think the really interesting question for me is not so much whether $10 a day was the right number, but I kind of asked myself, did they have the right conversations about balancing affordability of, of user fees with the actual cost of running the program? Yes. And I think that's really where yeah. the the discontent has burbled to the surface is not, no one's saying $10 a day is bad. Everyone is saying, we, you know, we, we, you know, I think most Childcare providers would support affordable options for parents um, because I know a lot of parents have, in the absence of affordable daycare options, that are, you know they've gone for unregulated daycare options and things like that. So no one's actually going to turn around and say we don't support ten dollars a day. Uh, I think the real question is: Did we have honest conversations about how much this was actually going to cost to run? Yeah, uh, and exactly. I think that's yeah. that's really where things have gotten to uh, uh, come to a head. And really, you know, if, if this is supposed to be the socially transform transformative program, then why aren't we being more ambitious?
why aren't we just talking about eliminating user fees altogether? I mean, we no longer have co-payments for healthcare. Do you have to pull out your wallet and pay every time you go to an emergency room or even to a, a you know to a doctor's office? So we've eliminated co-pay payments in healthcare, and we have this you know, admittedly, you know, there are flaws, but we do have a socialized, a, a, a system of socialized medicine in, and healthcare in Canada. If you really want to talk about this as being a socially transformative program, maybe the really ambitious policy plank here would be to say, maybe we should move towards a, a model where we don't have, uh, we don't have a, a, a user fee at all. You know, yeah. even $10 a day can act, can actually be quite a lot for someone, especially if you're living in Toronto. We've already talked about yeah, the yeah. rising cost of everything, yeah. right? So, Michelle, I think some of the context that matters here is when you talk to parents who, before this policy was being rolled out, were spending $1,000 a month, $1,500 exactly. a month, $2,000 yes. a month. This is why I, I, I know I know the way I frame the question is $10 the right number. You know, Juita is right to identify. The crux of the question is, was enough due diligence done to figure out what the right number was or yeah. did it just look really good on a campaign flyer? Yeah, exactly. We're all in agreement here. And, and I, I have the same questions because like you said, Dave, and that's what I was going to say is that this government had a lot of wiggle room to come down. Even if they had, let's say, set the figure at $25 a day, which many, many would have argued is still too high, but it's a huge discount from what was was happening before outside of Quebec. Now, maybe the Quebec template put too much, uh, it was too clear a one to, to follow for the government and deviations from that would have been seen as a bit of a political failure. I'm not sure about the political calculations that would have gone into this, but I have the exact same questions as you. Is Was the math done? This kind of comes back to what I was saying off the top. Did people sit down and crunch the numbers and say, yeah, 10 bucks is a totally sustainable number to target here? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not clear. I don't want to speculate. Yeah. But the fact that these conversations are happening so early in a five-year rollout does beg them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and or did, or did, sorry, and did someone actually sit down and say, hang on a second, these are our numbers. We've just had a massive pandemic and everything's gone up yeah. in price. Do we need to revisit the totally. yeah. numbers? You know? Or or, yeah, have, or, sure. or have built-in escalators, right? Juita, you talked about the 3% mm -hmm. in Alberta, right? Understanding that you have to, because this is such an important service, right? Like, like that's an important, I'm not just saying the policy is important. Mm -hmm. The people who do the work are important and the quality of the work is important so you want to make the most important so you, many would argue and very very important so the you want to make sure that you're creating wiggle room and space so you can give ECEs teachers and support staff raises along the way as well and I, I think that's where again that the crux of the question yes I'm being cheeky when I say was ten dollars the right number but the bigger question is do you cost this out properly considering how important it is? Now, I've said important eight times in the last 20 <laughs> seconds, so that's a sign that it's time to move on. Coming up after the break, the Toronto District School Board is cancelling classes in April for one day on account of a solar eclipse. How appropriate is that? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Julia Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic for you. The Toronto District School Board is cancelling classes in April on account of a solar eclipse. Nicole Reese explains. Elena Hyde, a professor of physics and astronomy at York University in Toronto, says the eclipse will be visible in the United States before moving towards southern Ontario, then Quebec, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia's Cape Breton, lasting for about two hours around the same time many kids in Canada are let out from school. Observers in the Ontario communities of Niagara Falls, Hamilton and Grimsby specifically can expect total darkness for about four minutes sometime between 2 and 4 p.m. Eastern time. Given how rare the celestial event is, is Hyde says precautions need to be taken, particularly with children, which include not looking directly at the eclipse. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. A cascading impact of dominoes happened around this topic. It jumped out to Michelle and I, and then Joita fell down the rabbit hole as well. Michelle, I'll lay my cards on the table here. <laughs> Yesterday during the show, I played the story and I talked about how ridiculous I think it is that they're canceling school on account of a solar eclipse based under the idea of safety, based on the idea that this is a teachable moment. This is an amazing opportunity to teach the kids about safety and the eclipse and you can build those little mirror boxes and do all kinds of great stuff i think it's ridiculous that they're canceling school on account of a solar eclipse any excuse for a day off i suppose michelle is it appropriate to cancel school on account of a solar eclipse well, but it's not an extra day off. What a lot of the boards are doing is rescheduling a, a pre-existing PA day and moving it up mm -hmm. by two by two weeks to do this. So it's not like they're creating an extra day off for themselves. And to be honest with you, I initially had the exact same reaction of, are you for real right now? And a huge eye roll. And then I read stuff and I'm a little more persuaded. There, there mm -hmm. are kids don't listen to instructions. There can be very serious consequences from staring at an eclipse. The darkness thing at peak time of traffic uh, is, mm -hmm. you know, not one that I feel perfectly equipped to weigh in on. But I think there are some genuine factors that are being considered here. And under the circumstances, I don't think what the schools are doing are, is completely ridiculous. That said, it is a great teachable moment. It could be a great teachable moment. And perhaps some boards are opting to handle that differently. And I would not have a huge problem with that, too. But I do think, I, I don't know, I, I, I've softened on this more than I thought I would upon reading some of the rationale. The child who wants to look at the eclipse is going to look at the eclipse regardless of school is is on or off that day, irrespective I mean, of whether like, or not okay. they're in class. Fair, and, and I will say that the, the cynical perspective is the school boards just don't want to be held <laughs> liable yeah. for, for anything yeah. going wrong, which like, but but again, like, is is that, in and of itself, a horrible position to take. I don't know. I do like that you identified peak traffic hours. I'm, I'm, I'm going to backtrack to that, but Juita, you get an opportunity to react to this as well and tell me that I'm a total, that I'm a total uh, old man yelling at the clouds, or in this case, yelling at the sun. Actually, uh, in the 1970s, the last time Ontario had a, a, a complete solar eclipse, uh, my husband had still been in school at that time, and they had an indoor recess because the eclipse was earlier in the day. So they didn't cancel school. Okay. Um, they used it as a sort of a learning opportunity. They pulled out the you know the video and 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 they talked about it and everything. Uh, but school boards do have an obligation to keep kids safe. Um, I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty tough sell to say it. I think the issue right now is that it's happening right in the afternoon, right? It's when people are being let out yeah. from school. 
there's no supervision at that stage anymore. Uh, yeah, sure, you could you know delay the pickup, uh, but that creates a whole host of other problems. Uh, you know, wait for the eclipse to come to a close and then uh, reschedule buses and you know uh, rearrange pickups with parents. I mean, that is an option as well. Uh, but I think what the school board is proposing, which is in fact not creating an extra day, but uh, just rescheduling a PA day probably makes a lot of sense under the circumstances. I mean, as someone who's very uh, proactive about vision health, um, I do take it very seriously that kids should, and because kids do have a sort of, if, you, if, you're, if you're my kind of a kid or if you're the kind of kid that I was, if someone told me not to do something, I turn around and do it, you know, just because you told me not to do it. Uh, and, I, and I think the uh, implications of looking into a solar eclipse are pretty like, severe. Um, we've already, Michelle's already mentioned the traffic implications. Again, we've had a lot of horror stories about kids getting hit by traffic, especially when, you know, when the time change and things like that happen. So again, it's a, it's a, these are all really, I mean, there's a propensity to want to scoff at the story and say, how ridiculous are you being? Yes, uh, but when it that comes is what to, I'm doing. But, that is actively but, but what I'm doing. It, but but when it comes to the safety of, of kids, especially very small children, it's a it's a pretty tough sell to tell me then you know that this isn't maybe it's an overly maybe it's an overly um, cautious approach. But when it comes to small children, I'd rather be overly cautious than have you know uh, than have kids dealing with the the yeah. lifelong implications of of having and, damage to their vision, but, for example. I, I, okay, but again, so you're but we're shifting responsibility. We're saying it's now the parents who yeah. are responsible to do yeah. that, right? Yes. Like like yes, I like I, I am not taking the position on air this morning that solar eclipses are not dangerous and they can be dangerous for your eye health. I'm saying that the rebellious child will be the rebellious child. Children are stupid. Like and they and they will do stupid things. <laughs> Yeah, yes. I mean, you are you are putting the burden on parents, and and maybe that's a bit of a cop out. Uh, but again, there's still a role for the for for the educate for educators to actually talk about safety during the eclipse and some of the things that you talked about. You can do all of that in the lead up too. So yeah, I don't that's really... fair. That's fair. Yeah. I like that. Okay, so I, based on where you guys land on this, here's where I'll kind of join. Here's where I'll kind of join your team, but in a different way. Michelle, you talked about some of the traffic dangers that are going to be occurring during rush hour when this possibility of this lunar eclipse, uh, the solar eclipse, is going to be happening, and all of a sudden I start asking myself the question: Should a solar eclipse? create a stat holiday, a full-blown stat holiday, so we can make sure that adults aren't getting solar eclipse in the eyes as they're trying to get home from work. Yeah, you know what? I, we've talked on this panel before about the controversies around creating stat holidays around um, events perhaps with greater claims to merit than, than a solar eclipse on that one. So I'm going to say no to a stat holiday on solar eclipses. Just because, again, adults are in better position to do to take whatever precautions mm -hmm. they have. This would be a stat holiday that happens every you know fifty years tops, <laughs> which makes it extra special. Basically. That makes it extra special. I, I, yeah, you know what? I guess I just kind of suck. I'm I, I'm a no on stat holidays for solar eclipses. I just I just I don't, I don't really see it. <laughs> Michelle opposes time off. I understand. I know how that works. That's typical person who works on the weekend mentality. Uh, Joita, uh, what, what, what yeah. you know? Let I'm me a offer professional a dark. I really am. <laughs> let, let me, Joita, Let me offer a little more context to this question beyond sort of just the mm -hmm. solar eclipse. There's a lot of research that the first Monday after a time change results mm -hmm. in more car accidents, more heart attacks, yes. all kinds of bad outcomes.
comes and it makes me wonder, should there be a stat holiday after the time change? If we're not going to get rid of daylight saving, maybe there should be a stat holiday after time change. But huh, if, if that there, I'm more down with. If, if, yeah, if, I would get behind that, yeah. Yeah, like if there is a health risk that, that you guys have both absolutely identified that perhaps I've been a little flippant with, should there be, should solar eclipses be a stat holiday? Um, yes and no. So I'd say yes, maybe in this instance, because we've already had, I, I've sort of made, laid out my position, which is I think this is more to do with the time of day, the eclipse is taking place rather than the eclipse itself. And so yes, as we said earlier, parents are being held responsible for something that, you know, ordinarily teachers would have monitored during the school day, if the eclipse had been during a recess, for example, they could just get kids from going out outdoors. Uh, and so how do parents actually supervise their kids if they are in fact at work? Um, so in that respect, if you really want to keep kids safe and you're pushing the, the the responsibility onto parents, then maybe by declaring a stat holiday, you would actually ensure that more people are at home to supervise their kids and make sure they don't do anything silly. Uh, with that Great. said, okay. with that said, I do think it's a bit silly. It, it is equally preposterous to come up with a, <laughs> with a stat holiday every time we have a solar eclipse, because you, this is a total solar eclipse, and that's a once-in-a-century event, according to the news, or maybe once every 50 years, or maybe once every half-century. But then you also get partial eclipses. And, uh, you know, would this have been as much of a big deal if the solar eclipse had taken place from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m.? So I don't really see the the need for a stat holiday arising out of the fact of a solar eclipse itself i mean but we can we can declare one off stat holidays we had a stat holiday for when the queen uh, died i think that that was a day off so you know maybe the provincial government can think about declaring a stat holiday in this instance uh, and take it on a case-by-case -case basis. A solar eclipse party, I'm telling you. We'll all hang out in my basement. There'll be no windows. We'll have a great time. <laughs> It'll be super fun. Uh, Michelle, Joita, you guys are always super fun. Michelle, have a lovely weekend. Thank you. Joita, hope, hope, hope you're feeling better. Have a lovely weekend yourself. Yeah, I feel Thank better. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Make sure to check out uh, the newest episode this weekend where they're continuing their series on accessible fashion. Coming up after the break, I've got a couple of regional news stories for you, including the Quebec government considering a change in how they fundraise. Got a clip from the Premier of Quebec that you are going to want to hear. And then Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Perhaps you are listening to this in the future on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. What's going on? What's happening? What's good? What does the future hold? What are the lottery ticket numbers for tonight and tomorrow? Let me know. Please, let me know. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, February the 2nd, 2024. Groundhogs telling you what the weather's going to be like. And apparently even a lobster on the East Coast. So uh, 
know the lobsters were great meteorologists, but apparently they're doing their part as well. They're more than meets the claw. Coming up in the second hour of the show, television has dabbled with all kinds of controversy, but is there anything too taboo for TV these days? Craig David weighs in on that. And the Grammy Awards are this weekend. Laura Bain highlights a couple of the nominees. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, the Manitoba government is boosting funds to public schools by an average of 3.4% starting in September. Education Minister Nello Altamar says the province will also let school divisions look at increasing property taxes. School divisions right now will be able to go to their local ratepayers and talk to them about their local levy. We trust school divisions to make the choices that will impact positively their, their community. The former government had set caps or frozen school property taxes. Over to Ontario, an interesting one for you today. The Supreme Court of Canada will make a ruling on political mandate letters today. Ontario wants minister mandate letters to be confidential. Karen Rebo has the background. The Supreme Court of Canada will rule on a case sparked by the CBC's request under the province's freedom of information laws for the mandate letters written to cabinet ministers after Ford won the 2018 election. The request for those was denied by the government on the basis that releasing the documents would reveal the substance of cabinet deliberations. The Information and Privacy Commissioner disagreed, ordering the government to disclose them, and two levels of Ontario courts have also sided with the CBC. The letters themselves, they were made public in September after a source provided them to Global News. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. I don't know about made public if they were leaked. They became public because they were leaked. You know, mandate letters are all about transparency. Mandate letters are telling you what a government's priorities are. I don't understand the need for mandate letters to be confidential unless perhaps you're hiding something. And over to Quebec, Quebec Premier Francois Legault says his Coalition Avenir Quebec party will no longer accept donations. His government is facing scrutiny over allegations that mayors have had to make donations for access to cabinet members. Legault is suggesting that all parties should only be financed by public money provided by the government based on vote share in previous elections. Here's what he had to say. People have some doubts, and I think it's important. It's important for me because politics is tough. I make decisions that are not always supported by other population. But one thing I cannot accept it is that we put in question my integrity. That's your look at the regional news. Let's talk about sports with Brock Richardson. The Professional Women's Hockey League held a showcase last night as part of NHL All-Star Weekend. Team King beat Team Kloss 5-3. Ottawa 
defenseman, defenseman, defense person, <laughs> Savannah Harmon was part of all five Team King goals, including scoring three straight. More than 16,000 people packed Scotiabank Arena. That blew Toronto forward Sarah Nurse away. Thought where we were four years ago in 2020 doing this game for the first time and the fact that we're here representing a professional hockey league, all of our different teams from across that league, um, and the amount of success that we've already had and, and will continue to have, it, it was like a huge, huge full, full circle moment. Minnesota forward Kendall Coyne-Schofield also reflected on the size of the crowd. It just keeps getting better and better every year, and, um, you know, I think the platform is, is incredible. Um, to be able to do this on this platform, come out to that full building was, was pretty surreal. And I know it's going to happen again in, another, in a couple of weeks from now uh, when Toronto plays Montreal. Brock, the league has only been in existence for about 32 days, at least active existence since the league launched. And it's just another massive victory for the PWHL last night. 16,000 people in attendance. You cannot get a ticket in Ottawa right now. You cannot get a ticket in Minnesota. They're getting thousands of people at games in Montreal. It's just been so many flowers for the PWHL in the last 32 days. This is off to a roaring start. It absolutely is off to a roaring start. I also just want to shout out uh, New York's player, Ella Shelton, who happened to get the first goal of yesterday's game, and she was also the first woman to score in PWHL history. So just to have that on top of it is pretty cool. But, yeah, the vibes yesterday were, were very well, and I think the NHL did a phenomenal job in what they did yesterday and just – Ending off the evening with a wonderful, wonderful showcase, and it's so good to see. Yeah, really, uh, there, there, there's a lot of victories to be talked about here in the uh, first month of the season, and uh, action continues this weekend. They'll be playing some games on Saturday and Sunday in the uh, PWHL with uh, no NHL hockey and uh, no NFL football. Hey, Brock, uh, the other element here of NHL All-Star Weekend is the draft took place last night, and pretty much in aggregate, every single team captain was just drafting teammates from their own team. There's basically going to be an entire Toronto Maple Leafs team with Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, Willie Nylander, and Morgan Riley, Leon Dreisaitl, and uh, and Connor McDavid are hanging out on their team together. You know, Nathan McKinnon, he he broke the trend a little bit of the Colorado Avalanche, but he drafted his old neighbor, Sidney Crosby. So looks like people are wanting to uh, partner up with their buddies this weekend. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's something to be said about it. And, and they, they were talking about it all through the media last night about how is the draft going to be. And I think... You know, if you're if you're not gonna pick your own teammates, and it's like, hey, wait a minute, I would have liked to seen a little bit mixed up, but I understand why you picked your own teammate. You you know that talent, and and they're gonna do that. So I'm not surprised, but I would have liked to seen a little more of a shake up than there was. I'll I'll level with you. I am not going to be watching any of the NHL All Star games. I I I just I don't like watching All Star hockey. It just it's not real hockey but I will say for the live audience and attendance in Toronto the fact that there's essentially going to be a Toronto Maple Leafs team being iced I think that'll add something to the dynamic in the crowd I, I think that'll in terms of an atmospheric component it will create a clear set of good guys and then uh, you'll finally find out if the Toronto Maple Leafs can uh, win anything if they can win any kind of tournament yeah absolutely and we'll take any tournament I uh, I was a little bit like, man, we have to win more Stanley Cups because I understand last night why they 
honored the 1967 team, but man, do I wish we had a more recent cup than that. But yeah, that... I understand. But <laughs> give the audience something to cheer about, even if it's a meaningless tournament that they might win. I'm okay with that. <laughs> hey, Brock, let's uh, pivot to the weekend look ahead more broadly here. No NFL football. They are doing their Pro Bowl, their All-Star game on the weekend, or not even a game anymore. It's the series of activities. You have the NHL All-Star game, which, like I told you, I'm not terribly interested in. So, Brock, as football winds down, the weekend look ahead gets a little bit more complicated, but I think I've got my Saturday night figured out. There's a couple of great college basketball games going on that are tremendous rivalries. Kentucky's playing Tennessee. Both those teams are ranked in the top 25. And then Duke and North Carolina are playing. Both teams ranked in the top 10. So, Brock, it kind of feels like this is the time of year when the football goes away, and maybe I can get a little bit more basketball bouncing into my life. And at some point very soon, we're going to be talking about March Madness. That gets around the corner, and qualifying for that so yeah college basketball is is gonna be a thing now and it sounds like some pretty good matchups i am gonna um uh watch a little bit of the all-star game but that that does sound like something i'll watch a little bit of college basketball as well so yeah tsn's gonna pick up a bunch of those uh college basketball games they've already been showing a lot on their uh, tsn plus uh, streaming service but now with football out of the way it's gonna pop up on some of the uh, network channels as well so definitely worth checking out hey brock thank you for this have a great day thank you that's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Hey, speaking of NHL All-Star Weekend, that relates to the daily poll today at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The festivities are underway in Toronto. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you answer a Toronto question. This is a national television show, after all, that just happens to be broadcast from Toronto. And as I've told you a million times, not a Torontonian, just someone who lives here. When a major event comes to your town, do you attend some of the non-official events? Live podcast recordings, concerts, fanfares, etc.? Yes or no? And course you know you think about big events alex mentioned the great cup we talked about the junos there's all kinds of great events that come with this cool shoulder programming so i'm curious if you get yourself involved so you can vote on social media at accessible media inc on facebook or at accessible media on x you can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca feedback at ami.ca or go old school pick up the phone 1-866-509-4545 1-866-509-4545 coming up next the grammys are this weekend laura bain will highlight a couple of the nominees this is now with dave brown on ami tv back it's now with dave brown on ami tv and in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca hope you're enjoying the show wherever you may be let's bring in alex Smythe for the weather story of the day alex you once again cast your gaze to the maritimes 
I do, Dave, because despite what any predictions uh, may be brought up by rodents or crustaceans today on Groundhog Day, needless to say, things are going to be feeling quite familiar for those out in the East Coast and Maritime region because a large snowstorm uh, system is making its way currently through the region that's going to have multiple bands of impact and leave lots of snow in the region. So the first wave had started yesterday and will carry on through to today. Uh, the hardest hit areas are northeastern New Brunswick, which could see upwards of 20 centimeters of snow by the time this band is finished. Places like Halifax, Charlottetown, uh, Moncton, they could see upwards of 10 to 15 centimeters uh, potentially one the snow system clears by the end of today that said that's not the only system the region can't expect this weekend because there is one forming in this out to the south of Nova Scotia and the exact tract is still uh, yet to be determined and, and finalized but uh, experts believe that uh, northeastern um, you know places like uh, northeastern uh, Nova Scotia and then the northern parts and the northwestern parts of Newfoundland are going to be the hardest hit areas and so there's going to be strong winds upward gusts of 70 kilometers per hour and also upwards of 50 centimeters of snow with this next Ooh. system so it's going to be a very impactful one especially in that kind of corridor of the maritime region so despite you know predictions it may the, the conditions may start to feel very similar day in and day out if you're out in the maritime region and this system is set to linger into the beginning of next week dave anyone who puts their shovel away in february is just asking for the weather gods to rain down upon them alex thank you for this talk to you a little bit later in one minute laura bain has a preview of the grammys but first a little something different for tech trends today this one's for from the science file, a bunch of asteroids are going to be buzzing by Earth this weekend. Ben Thomas explains. First things first, it'll pass within 1.7 million miles of Earth. But that's seven times the distance from the Earth to the moon. And there's no chance of it hitting us. Designated 2008 OS7, NASA estimates it's between 690 and 1,575 feet across, so similar in size to the Empire State Building. It's just one of several asteroids making approaches in the coming days, three much smaller ones, no more than 10 yards across, on Friday, followed by another two on Saturday, and on Sunday, an asteroid roughly half the size of 2008 OS7. I'm Ben Thomas. <laughs> you know, I hope they got those calculations right. I hope they remembered to carry the one, because uh, even if it's uh, further away than the moon, still a little too close for my comfort. And I do move a little bit like a dinosaur, so I know that I'll be one of the first people to go extinct if some heck breaks loose. Let's switch to the world of entertainment. The 66th annual Grammy Awards are happening on Sunday. Laura Bain, you've got a couple artists that are on your radar. 
I do, um, but I actually just want to start with a bit of information about how folks can watch the Grammys, because it's not as straightforward as just kind of tuning oh. into one ceremony. Okay. So maybe <laughs> maybe everybody knows this. I didn't really know this. There's 94 categories in the Grammys, so just an absolute ton of categories. So it's broken up into two events on Sunday. Um, so there's the Grammys, the Grammy premiere ceremony. That's actually where the majority of the Grammy Awards are handed out, and I want to mention that because that's something that folks can watch for free that can be live streamed at live.grammy.com starting at 3 30 p.m eastern and there's going to be lots of performances but not as much as the of the big names uh kind of at that okay. ceremony and I think that's where we'll see the awards given out to the artists that I'm going to mention in just a moment here. But um, then, of course, there's the main event that folks think of. Now, that's happening at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's hosted by Trevor Noah. It's not available to stream for free. It can be watched on broadcast at CBS and City TV in Canada, or it can be streamed on Paramount+. Plus. And that's where we're going to see some of those big performances. I mentioned Joni Mitchell last week, mm -hmm. Billie Eilish, Luke Combs your boys uh, as well as you two and and that's where we're going to get kind of the big categories that everyone thinks of song of the year album of the year given out um but as you mentioned i wanted to just highlight two nominees uh, from the blind and partially sighted community on the list that jumped out to me. Oh, now, yeah. no promises. There's 94 categories. I probably missed someone from the disability community. But first, I wanted to mention an American bluegrass fiddle player named Michael Cleveland. Uh, so he's completely blind as well as hard of hearing. And he's nominated in the Best Bluegrass Album category for his album, Lovin' of the Game. And I have brought a clip uh, from that album, a track called Empty Pocket Blues, that we can give a listen to. Oh, yeah. That one works for me. That one works for me, Laura. That's Friday vibes yeah. right there. Gets my foot tapping, that's for sure. Um, and cool little factoid, this would be his, if he wins, it'll be his second win because he won in 2020. And in honor of that first Grammy win, Charlestown, Indiana, which is his home state, designated February 5th as Michael Cleveland Day. So pretty cool to have a day named yeah, after that, you. Your... No doubt. No, that's cool. <laughs> Um, so it also caught my attention that the Blind Boys of Alabama are nominated this year in the Best Americana Performance category. Uh, I know that some folks might be familiar with them. I think they're just fantastic. They're a group that first formed in 1939 as part of a school chorus at a segregated school for blind and deaf African-American children in, of course, Alabama. And they've had a rotating membership with some uh, members of the group being there for de uh, for decades. And they've won five previous Grammy Awards. I've brought a clip from the song Friendship, which is uh, the track that they are nominated for, if we want to give that a little listen. I love to hear you say oh, we got a friendship. Uh -huh. Kind of let the a little less a Friday vibe but my goodness the soul just pouring out of the speakers on that one 
Absolutely. And really kind of drawing on a lot of gospel traditions. And I will say they do have a lot of tracks that are a lot more kind of rocking and upbeat. So I would recommend that folks give them a listen if they're not already familiar. But on my way out the door, Dave, I thought you and I could have a little fun looking at one of the main categories people will be watching this week, this weekend, which is Song of the Ooh, Year. Yes, yes. Let's have some fun. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give you the nominations. Hopefully I haven't missed anyone. You tell me what your pick is. So we've got A&W by Lana Del Rey, Antihero by Taylor Swift, Butterfly by John Batiste. Dance the Night Away by Dua Lipa. That's one from the Barbie album. We've got Flowers from Miley Cyrus, Kill Bill from SZA, Vampire by Olivia Rodrigo, Oof. and What Was I Made For by Billie Eilish. Again, another track from Barbie showing wow, up there. Wow. Oh, man. Laura, there's some really great songs on that list that are both popular music masterpieces in terms of just their popularity, but they're also rather brilliant. The Lana Del Rey song is phenomenal. Vampire Olivia Rodrigo is incredible, but you're going to hate me for this. I got to go with my girl T Swift. I, I, <laughs> Antihero, the, the lyrics to Antihero are so much more complex than just a bubblegum pop song talking about mental health and talking about the things that haunt her and painting a scenario in one verse about a future daughter-in-law killing her for the money. She doesn't she's not even married. She doesn't have kids. She's already she's already painting her daughter-in-law with a broad brush. It is brilliant stuff and I know I've kind of made the confession on the air that I'm Kind of becoming a Swifty slowly but surely, but but the song is just brilliant. It, it, it's more than just your standard pop song. It clearly shows that that she is just working on a different level than other pop musicians. I love that on a Friday, Dave. You and I can be somewhat on the same page here uh, because I actually like every single song on this nomination list, which surprised me a little bit. Um, and I, I have a bit of a hard time picking a favorite. I wasn't as familiar with the A&W track from Lana Del Rey, so I gave that a listen this morning. Oh, that is a great oh, tune. Wow. She is amazing. She is, um, Lana Del Rey is incredible. But I also feel like Antihero sometimes plays in my head as like my personal theme song because often it's me, hi, I'm the problem. <laughs> um, and I even used it in like a school presentation this semester. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like in that, I don't know. I, you know, tough to pick, but some some great songs in this category. Yeah, it it just feels like it really has been... I mean, it's been Taylor's decade, but it really feels like for the last 18 months in the last year, it's been Taylor's year. And I and I feel as though that should get capped off with a Grammy win for Song of the Year. I, again, when, when you can when you combine popularity and 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 lyrical complexity of the song, I, I think that's what an award should be. Very similar to the Oscars, right? Can you show me box office success, but also did something artfully? That that's sort of the definition of what this should be. And and, it, and it's not to diminish a diminish or disparage some other great songs on this list, but it really feels like it's been her year, and, and it really feels like this would be some icing on the cake and maybe her boyfriend winning the Super Bowl a week later. Well, you know, as I said, 94 categories. I think that we'll have uh, at least a little bit to talk about on the Grammys on Monday, Dave. Yeah, hopefully I get in to work on time and I can uh, pull a couple clips for you as well because there will be a lot of sound up clips available. So I'll see, I'll, I'll see if we can put our heads together on Monday morning to uh, bring a little bit of that audio richness from the night before. Sounds, sounds like a plan. <laughs> right on. Thanks, Laura. Have an awesome weekend. 
Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain at the entertainment desk. Coming up after the break, are you a food purist? Are you a bagel purist? There's a story emerging here that might make you a little cranky if you believe that all bagels need to be holed. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Oh, feeling funky on a Friday. Love this tune, man. A lot of horns, a lot of beats. One of these days, I'm just going to start rapping over these beats, and then that will get the show canceled instantaneously. Alex Smythe for the roundtable today, alongside myself, Nazreen Abdel-Majid, and Ramya Amuthin. You are talking about one of my favorite things, food. Yeah, Dave, uh, this story comes courtesy of our visual producer, Bruce Beclarian. Big Bruce. Who, who, Big Bruce, he, he uh, sent me an article yesterday and I found it fascinating because Philadelphia Cream Cheese has partnered with some of North America's most popular bagel chains to introduce bagel holes. And holes is spelled W-H-O-L-E-S. Yes, bagels without holes in them they partnered <laughs> don't, don't they realize that's a branding problem like like the the, the Slightly. it's going to confuse Slightly. people are going to be confused by this exactly I, I i was trying to figure out how best to actually describe bagel holes because you know you think a bagel hole you think a hole in a bag yeah, it's a no. holeless bagel like 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 come on guys. Like, yeah. like like think think about like donut holes right like uh, yeah. what we call timbits what americans call munchkins donut holes it doesn't mean a full donut it means a, the the thing in the middle of the donut people are just going to think they're getting little tiny bagels well, regardless what people are thinking, the uh, Philadelphia cream cheese has partnered with Utopia Bagels in New York, uh, Stein uh, Golds in Chicago, and even St. Viator in Montreal, mm -hmm. to name a couple of the different chains that they partnered with. And they, are, those brands are all in favor of a maybe holeless bagel future, Dave. Uh, these bagels are available for a limited time, both in-store and online in Canada. You can order it through the St. Viator tour website and they ship across Canada. In my mind, this is a bit of an attack on the traditional bagel design, which always had <laughs> that signature gap in the middle. I loved it. I always felt like it was something so so iconic. And same thing like a poutine that now has, you know, all these countless other toppings in, on it instead of just mm. the gravy and the, and the uh, cheese curds or, you know, the idea of having a hard shell taco opposed to the signature just soft shell taco you would traditionally get. So I wanted to bring this whole idea of what does it mean to have a mix-up or a change-up on some traditional foods? How pure and how much of a purist are you when it comes to food? So let's bring in Ramya Muthun first. Ramya, how much of a mm. food purist are you? And are you okay with your bagels not having holes in them? 
Nah, I prefer the bagels with the holes in them because for some of my favorite part, uh, one of my favorite parts of eating a bagel is that giant, giant dollop of cream cheese that gets stuck in the middle. Oh, um, oh yeah. my God. Especially if it's warmed from the warmth of the bagel and now it's just like very soft and very nice. <laughs> I just like poke my thumb in through the bottom, take that thing off the top and just have a whole slew of cheese and so good anyway so now i can't imagine eating a bagel not without that um and eh, i don't know it's just a branding thing like are really people gonna go like are people such in such despise of the whole of the bagel that they're now going to be like yes finally someone has taken away the whole and, and made this bagel for me i don't know i don't think so i am not a food purist though i do enjoy you know like going to the cne and trying twists of different things and um taking recommendations of like versions off the traditional like putin is another one that gets a lot of uh, argument around this careful 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 i know yeah. i'm not gonna even go there but i'm just saying i will try different things aside from the <laughs> original the traditional uh, but i don't stray too far there it, I, I, even as a Montrealer, I don't find this to be offensive. The way that I see this, Nazreen, is it's an opportunity for more carbohydrates. And anyone who can see me on camera right now knows that Dave's love of carbohydrates is reflected on national <laughs> television five days a week. It just strikes me as more carbohydrate with more room to do a big schmear of cream cheese. Yeah, Dave, I, I, I have to admit, I'm a purist, and I like the OG, the original um ingredients and the orig original ways of what it should be so uh, bagels i can't say that i like them holeless okay um <laughs> i don't like change I think it's very yeah, confusing. exactly exactly very just get a regular sandwich if you must um but bagel should stay the same just like how poutine shouldn't have extra toppings just like uh yeah, there's so many onion? things. I like the original. The original donuts in Krispy Kreme should not be filled with other toppings. That's, uh, I don't like change in general, Dave. You know, it's because you Ontarians ruined poutine. This is the problem. <laughs> you Ontarians found out yeah, about poutine yeah, and you just started is. actively ruining it because that's what Ontario does. It like ruins every other province's mm -hmm. good ideas. Um, oh. Alex, everybody else has chimed in on this one, but where do you land on the idea of a bagel without a hole? Yeah, I'm not a fan of it, Dave. I, I, I think if you want something that you're going to be have more surface area just get like an english muffin or something else That's like that. This, no it's not the same it doesn't taste the I same i know it's not the same well a bagel's not the same without the hole in it that's part yeah. of the signature design and shape of Fair. the bagel and i i'm the one person i guess on this uh, uh round table that has the dissenting opinion i'm not a cream cheese guy i'm a butter guy oh, butter so, on bagel's oh, good too just but a butter on the bagel no cream cheese you know i i i'm always careful around with the lactose uh, 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 like sensitivity, I guess. I'm, I'm always uh, careful about how much dairy I'm consuming. So butter's a happy medium for me. It soaks in, it's good. You have the roundness, you have the little, the great thing about the whole too, you get the exterior like little crust on the inside as well, yeah. where it's like you can have that. 
You know, there's a little hidden like mm -hmm. trick to how mm -hmm. it's cooked. So I, I, in that regard, I'm a bit of that like food purist. And, uh, you know, Dave, I will push back on the poutine though. I was in Montreal and I had smoked meat poutine. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just Ontario that ruins poutine. I think that uh, Quebec, uh, they have a role to play as well. Hey, hey, it's our creation. We get to play with it as we please. Y'all don't get to ruin it with your, with your mass produced poutine shops. But yes, you are right. Uh, there are places in Montreal that combine the smoked meat and the poutine and uh, even a purist will sometimes <laughs> indulge in that and get uh, immediate heartburn immediate heartburn uh -huh. um alex i like the butter on the bagel that's well done although um you know a true individual doesn't even bother toasting their bagel you just eat it right out of the bag like a chocolate oh. bar like just bite into it no topping at all but uh, i love cream cheese peanut butter butter but nazreen with all this conversation of you guys of, of you bagel hole purists I get it. It's got me thinking about the possibility of people just making bagel loaves, just making loaves of bread that are bagel. And like now I think we're really getting somewhere. But Nazreen, your favorite way to consume a bagel, toppings otherwise. I'd have to say plain bagel toasted with cream cheese, maybe extra cream cheese if I'm feeling a that little girl. wild that, that morning. Girl. Right? Um, and yeah, and I have to cut it in the middle. Sorry, I have to cut it in the middle so I can get that cream cheese in the center, just like Remia. I mm -hmm. get you. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. I like that one. But, you know, bagels also make lovely sandwiches. Like, you can put some, like, bacon and cheese and lettuce and tomato, mm -hmm. make a bagel BLT, like the bagel breakfast sandwiches some of these yep. uh, restaurants offer are delicioso. But, Ramya, I want to come back to this idea of me not toasting my bagel. There were times in my life, there were times in my life when maybe uh, I didn't have the true patience to even operate with a knife, and I would buy a tub of cream cheese and would have my bag of of bagels from Dad's Bagel at Sherbrooke and Wilson, which no longer exists, and it makes me very, very sad that that bagel place oh. is no longer there. And I would get home, and I would tear into the bag of bagels, and I would open the tub of cream cheese, and I would just start ripping pieces off the bagel and plunging it into the cream Dang cheese oh, as if I was wow. dipping a chip. <laughs> wow, that is savage. I mean, if the consistency is right, if the consistency is right for the cream cheese, I get you, though, because I'm the person who's eaten out of pots on the stove with the ladle. So I kind of uh, yeah, get that. Yeah, girl, talking yeah, about language. You know? Exactly. But don't you want to toast it, though? There is a, a premium proper experience of the bagel, and it is the toasted um, everything or sesame. I can't choose. I like both because uh, I love, like, the, the stuff on top. And uh, with the cream cheese inside and the middle, got to be properly cream cheesy i'm willing to bet you know how you're saying that there's more room for cream cheese if there wasn't a hole in the bagel dave i don't think so i think if somebody were to do the math there would, there's definitely more <laughs> cream cheese in the bagel with the hole in it because it just comes out fair, everywhere fair. And, yeah yeah the schmear restricted the schmear mm -hmm. creates a gravitational pull alongside the heat of course the one thing to bear in mind here about like true bagel experiencing is again you're going into the store and you're pulling them hot off the oven, right? Yeah. Like you don't need to toast them because you're eating them hot right yeah, out of Saint Vieter. You know, uh, you gotta live, you gotta live that's life here a little bit. Alex, you uh, have put me in my place on poutine, and I'm willing to accept your position. But I will continue to make fun of this awful province. Um, <laughs> what is a kind of food that should be left alone utterly? Like, what is something that should not be allowed to be reinvented by a giant cream cheese conglomerate? You know, I I think there are certainly different uh, kind of food creations out there that it's like just let's leave it alone and off the top of my head I think just 
let's let's get away from all these like reinventing the sandwich you know like something like the KFC double down is always something that will just haunt my dream mm. forever. Like, let's just have two pieces of bread, some sort of protein filling. Let's just keep it simple. Let's not try to cr just remove bread or, or like change bread or let's defry an entire sandwich. Like, keep the sandwich simple. Let's let's have wow. the bread on the outside that you can hold it, not get your hands all greasy when you're eating it. Like, come on now, let's let's be simple. And Alex, civilized. Alex and I are just not seeing eye to eye on food today. He's <laughs> clearly a man who's never put a McDonald's egg McMuffin between two hash browns and consumed it that way that's the Whoa, that's no. the that's, that's the dave no. brown that's the dave Too brown double. you're eating mcdonald's you're eating kfc it's gonna be greasy that's that's part and parcel of the equation rumia what kind of food item traditional food item should be left alone okay so i'm gonna go sri lankan here because this is what i have most ties to yes there's, yes there's something that we called kotti roti okay and it's basically like it's our it's a street food where you toss up uh, pieces of roti with a bunch of curry. Now, the traditional ways is to use chicken curry or mutton curry, like lamb, goat, whatever, um, and vegetarian, like if you, you do not eat meat. That's it, okay? These are the three that we're used to. Now, we're seeing so much, and I will say, granted, I, like I said, I stray a little, but not too much, so I've eaten some with, like, shrimp in it, and that's fine, but now I'm seeing way too much, way too much kotu. Like, people have gotten really extreme with this stuff, and they've tossed in, you know, other, um, like, Indian foods, like butter chicken kotu or uh, tikka masala and all this stuff. But And I'm also seeing, like, other things, like mac and cheese kotu. I was like, what? No, cancel no, that. No, get out of like, there. Get out of here. Yeah, don't even like this is not a an actual combination that makes sense or just a little uh different from what you're we're used to we're just to tossing everything and calling it gotu yeah. and i'm very against it get yeah. your get your overly fusioned food out of here like <laughs> you know like let some okay, things exactly. be what they are nazreen i ordered i went and got shawarma yesterday and they had like 17 different garlic sauces and i was like well thank you for the okay. options but i just need garlic sauce like eh, you know maybe a garlic sauce and a spicy garlic sauce i don't need 17 variations Dave, shawarma is like a whole different story when everybody adds their own recipes to a shawarma. It's not shawarma if you add the random recipes. It's very traditional. <laughs> the same the same recipe, the same ingredients over and over. But another thing that I want to bring up that's Palestinian, and I think that should be definitely left alone is hummus. Don't that's start adding chocolate. Don't start adding chocolate in your hummus. Don't start adding strawberry Ugh. or cheese in Ugh. your hummus no Ugh. it's the same five ingredients you got your garlic you got your lemon you got your chickpeas you got your sumac you got your tiny that's it that's i it. hate when people say oh chocolate mint hummus i'm like what the hell is that <laughs> 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 whoa we got we got nazreen fired up today right. uh there we go love it uh nazreen alex you guys have a lovely weekend enjoy uh your bagels uh in alex's case with butter and nazreen's case with cream cheese ramia before i send you off to get baked goods what's coming up on kelly and ramia today at 2 p.m eastern time of course, we have sports with Brock Richardson. That's one of the ways we cap up the week. Uh, we're also talking gardening with Susan Kearney. She's, because we're just at the start of February, featuring some February flowers. You Ooh. might have heard of the iris. Ooh. You've definitely heard of the violet. Those are just two of the flowers. And we have um, app update with John Beeler. He's going to talk about some transparency coming out around delivery, food delivery services and market prices oh, on no. the menus. Oh, on no. The services. I don't want to know. know. I don't want to know. No, I don't want to know. I'm going to skip that segment. I don't want to know. 
You're gonna you're scared you're gonna have to make some changes in your life? <laughs> well no, I just don't wanna know about the bad choices I'm making. Okay. Wow, this is this is very deep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> hey Ramya, have a great show and a great weekend. Uh, talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. That's Ramya and within the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI TV. Coming up next, television has dabbled with all kinds of controversy in its history. But is there anything that's too taboo for TV these days? Greg David will weigh in with his thoughts, and maybe I'll take my shirt off, and we'll see if that's too taboo for AMI-TV. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's some laughs coming your way on AMI in the next week or so. The all-access comedy special is hitting the airwaves next Friday, February the 9th at 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv and will eventually be up for stream at amiplus.ca. Got to play a little clip for you here of uh, the host of the all-access comedy show, a clip from the special hosted by DJ Demers. In the clip, DJ is sharing some of his personal challenges with self-identification. He's wearing a suit on stage in front of a live audience, and at the bottom right corner of the screen, there's an American Sign Language interpreter. Let's roll the clip. It's great to be here. I, I wear a hearing aid myself. That's my disability. I am deaf, well, hard of hearing. I've had full-on deaf people get mad at me for calling myself deaf. They've come up to me after shows. When I've called myself deaf, they come up after. They're like, you're not. Oh, looks like. Okay, I don't want no trouble here, you know. I'm just a couple dead batteries away from being on your team. You know what I mean? We gotta... <laughs> I do love performing on an accessible show like this because it's so great, not just from the accessibility perspective, but it's so good for your ego as a comedian because what happens is I tell my joke and then the laughter comes in from the hearing people and then a moment later, everyone who's reading the uh, real-time captioning, they laugh. And then a second after that, the deaf people laugh from the interpretation, so I get three waves of laughter off the same joke. It's tremendous. <laughs> Greg David can offer a little bit of perspective on the special that's coming your way next Friday. Greg is a communication specialist with AMI's marketing and communications department. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning. You know, I think this is the third or fourth time that I've actually heard or watched a clip from All Access Comedy, and it DJ just kicks off the evening with jokes like that and the rest of the special is just as good yeah dj is tremendous at what he does the fact is uh, whenever he comes through toronto the, sh the shows are pretty much sold out every like through the roof so yeah dj is having a lot of success and it's great to have him there greg you and i talked about the all access comedy special before it was taping we talked about it after it was taped and now it's finally hitting the airwaves <laughs> yeah. what's what's the level of excitement here about a week out from it making its debut Oh, there's a lot of excitement. I mean, this is unlike anything that we've ever done before. There's never been a stand-up special that is specifically, you know, starring members of the disability community coming out and telling jokes. Uh, so this is uh, this is the, the reason we're talking about it so much is because we're so proud of it. We love the way that it's turned out. We want to do more, and we want to get as many eyeballs to check it out as possible, and and also you know listen in as well because it's fully it's it's fully accessible. 
Forgive me for repeating myself here, because I've said this a couple times on air this week, and I've said this a couple times talking about the All Access Comedy Special. It's really cool to platform disability culture, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of conversations that we have about the importance of platforming disability culture and disability entertainment, but this is a wonderful example of actually putting comedians with disabilities on stage and letting them show their work rather than talk about their work. Yeah, I, you know, there's there are five uh, stand-up comedians. DJ is just one of them. All members of the disability community, like we said, and yeah, they have stories to tell, just like every other stand-up comedian. I mean, stand-up comedians traditionally, you think of Jerry Seinfeld coming out and talking about observations on his life, talking about relationships and love. It's the same thing with all these, uh, all the folks that are taking part in all access comedy. But of course, they've also got the jokes and stories that they can tell about being members of the disability community and 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 having laughs with regard to that too so yeah it's it's just great to get that kind of uh you know that kind of storytelling out of uh, you know a little different storytelling uh up on the stand-up stage greg uh, who are some of the folks I, I i used to have the list in front of me but it dissipated yeah. who are some of the folks uh, to put on the radar here ahead of the debut next friday Man, that's my job. My job is to have the press release <laughs> open on my laptop so that I can tell you. So, so in addition to DJ Demers, uh, who who is the he's he's the host of the show, so he comes out and talks about the evening, and then he closes the night as well. Courtney Gilmore is part of of the lineup, as is uh, Tanya Lee Davis, Aaron Belial, and Ryan Lachance. So very uh, you know very very funny comedians and all Canadian Canadian comedians as well. Yeah, top tier. All Access Comedy debuts next Friday, February the 9th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV and available to stream at amiplus.ca. Hey, Greg, let's uh, talk a little bit about the broader world of TV here. Rolling Stone magazine put out an article recently about a 2004 episode of Degrassi, The Next Generation. The episode dealt with teen pregnancy and abortion. It was so controversial, it actually wasn't broadcast until 2006 in the United States, and of course, yeah. the history of TV has a litany of controversies attached to it. Uh, I made a joke about nipplegates during the commercial break to you yeah. during the Super Bowl halftime show when Justin Timberlake uh, ripped off part of Janet Jackson's clothes, exposing her, and that set off a storm for about uh, 10 days to two weeks. But I wonder, Greg, morals and mores and ethics have shifted a little bit in the world of TV. What's actually taboo on TV anymore? Well, I, I think Nipplegate would still be taboo. You know, I was trying to think of things, but I think that that's a great example. In some cases, some some could say that it killed Janet Jackson's career for a little while. Um, but, you know, I think something happening on live television is probably the most taboo thing that would happen uh, with all of the streaming services that are out there now and the storytelling, the tales that, that they're telling in episodes and from season to season. I don't really think that there's anything really taboo. Um, you know, if you're watching a, a true crime drama, usually something is edited so some of the, the more horrific details aren't shown on screen or necessarily spoken about. If you're watching a scripted TV drama, you know, uh, the death of a child is, is, is never, you, you know, is never shown. So maybe that's the answer. Um, you know, the killing of, of, of kids is, is probably, and it's mm. weird for me to be talking about that, but that seems to be the most taboo subject that, that still isn't necessarily shown or, uh, you know, on television or, or discussed either. So, Greg, are you saying that if I were to take my shirt off right now and go for sort of the suit blazer with no with no suit look underneath it, my nipples might get us in some trouble? 
I think that they probably would. There would probably have to be an apology that you'd certainly have to make, and and maybe maybe anybody involved with the show might have to make. Let's let's not test those waters, okay? Let's 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 keep it PG for the rest of the show. You, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that my nipples have appeared on oh, AMI sh- television because we did okay. a, we did a special up from CNIB's Lake Joe a couple of years ago where they had me take my shirt off and jump into the lake, and uh, apparently uh, my my camera guy Darcy to Tony said my white chest hair ruined the entire white balance on his camera well see i guess it's all about context right if it's within an episode of a show um but i don't know you know maybe let's try it if you want to like shake things up let's 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 try it right now and see what happens you, you, you know what i call the uh, the shirtless with suit blazer look i call that the world wrestling entertainment look i call that yeah. the professional wrestler look where it's like yes i will wear this nice suit jacket to show my authority and corporate nature but i will also not be wearing a shirt I like it because if you had the pastel T-shirt underneath, it would be the Don Johnson Miami Vice look. So I like that you, by deleting one piece of it, it's become a whole other genre of, 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 of wardrobe. I love it. Hey, Greg, this Rolling Stone article is something that jumped out to you, and that's why you wanted yeah. to sort of talk about this episode and talk about the article. What was your takeaway from this Rolling Stone magazine article? Uh, you know, it's always that Canadians seem a lot cooler than than the U.S. I mean, the fact that it was banned for two years just because of the controversy. And obviously, you know, you only have to look at the news to see how controversial abortion still is down in the U.S. So that was kind of my biggest takeaway. And it also caused me to look back at some episodes of other shows. And, you know, there are controversial episodes of Seinfeld and, and South Park, obviously, and even the X-Files. There was an episode of that show that never aired in syndication mm, again mm. because of the content. So, yeah, my biggest takeaway was like wow that here in canada even though you know we're not a perfect country we do you know accept storylines and 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 genres and and other lifestyles as opposed to some other countries greg only about 45 seconds here but you heard the conversation in the last segment all about uh, foods that should be left alone sacred what kind of food do you think should be left alone uh, I think the the humble hamburger or cheeseburger. I think that you know you can go to a lot of restaurants that have like thirty different burgers on the menu. But I think that you know if you've got a good decent meat patty, you shouldn't have to hide that under you know aiolis and and you know uh, you know barbecue bacon like bacon j- like- bacon jam. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, for me, it's just all about the meat. It's a, a few, um, a few, you know, meager toppings like a mustard, a relish, maybe a pickle, hot pepper, lettuce, and tomato. But yeah, I go kind of bare bones and don't like to mix, mix, uh, mix a lot in there. So I think that's the one for me. Greg, you're a man after my own heart. Have a lovely weekend. <laughs> Talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds great. Thanks, Dave. That's Greg David, communications specialist for AMI, based out of beautiful Chelsea, Quebec, where they know how to handle poutine. That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Until Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun like we do at the end of the week. We say thank you to the people who work their tails off behind the scenes to get this show to air every day. So say it with me. Roll those credits gang host dave brown co-host producer alex smite sports reporter brock richardson entertainment reporter laura bain contributors ramia mutin nisreen abdel majid senior show producer andrika delanero visual producer bruce baclarian producers paul daniel marianne dion jones bob pagrak Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DB producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxton.
Toby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Productions, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024, Accessible Media Inc. An AMI original production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.